You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, you can be seated and you can open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We've got those Genesis journals are around. I think they're back on that table. I don't really know, but you can open up in your Bibles to Genesis 2. And I don't know if you ever get irritated about this or not. Some of, the, some of the things that get marketed to you, some of the advertisements that you see, you're just scrolling along on Facebook or, you know, you're just watching a show or a YouTube video or something, and all of a sudden they show a guy who, uh, who's not very attractive, um, who looks really sad and doesn't have any hair on his head. And then what they do is they show you a second picture that if you use this product, you'll all of a sudden have a wonderful head of hair and you will be attractive and successful in every way. And I, the before and after picture is just not fair. It's just not fair. I don't know if you've run into that. Um, and I'm sure you all get those same ads that I get in terms of Rogaine and plugs and, you know, those kinds of stuff, which is, it's not true. It's not true. But the before and after picture is a powerful picture. I mean, it's a powerful marketing ploy to show that what will happen once something else happens. Once you buy our product, your life will change one way or the other. And it works positively and negatively. You could go from being having you know, a nasty mullet or man bun, and then if you buy their razors, you can then be attractive and successful bald man. And a little bit faster and a little bit more energy because you're getting places. You don't have all that weight holding you down. Your life will just simply be better. And you got the, you got the, the, the before and the after picture. And what we're getting at at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is we're getting the end of the before picture. And we're about to, in Genesis 3, begin to see the after picture. In fact, you live in the after picture because this works negatively as well. You've seen the pictures where someone's life before they get hooked on meth. And you see the before and the after. And it's real stark to see what happens when some, the before and after picture comes into focus. And that's what we're looking at right now is the before picture. What did God design the world to be like? How did he design it to work? And then we all live in the after. We all understand what has gone wrong. We, this is one of those things. The rest of our Bibles is going to show us, and we live in the reality of the after. This is what God has created things to be, but it, this is what we're actually dealing with. This is what sin, Genesis 3, has done to the world. And so we're going to look at the, the God of brilliant human design. What was the before picture for humanity? We've looked at it a little bit back in February 21st when we looked in Genesis 1 about God making male and female in his own image. So you could go back and listen to that one a little bit. Uh, last week's we talked about humanity and the creation of Adam from the dust, and we're going to look at the creation of Eve here. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend all of our time looking at the before picture. We're going to look at the before picture of Genesis 2. And uh, there's a, a lot of temptation to go and begin to try to pick apart the after picture and just see all the ways the world has gone wrong from Genesis chapter 2. We're not going to do much of that today. The reality is, is that the rest of our Bible will do that for us. So the book of Genesis will take us through that. We want to just delight in the before picture because you know, as we look at this, that our lives don't look like the before picture. We're living in the after picture. One of my favorite preachers put it this way. He says, if, if a crooked stick is before you, you need not explain how crooked it is. Just lay a straight one down beside it and the work is done. 
what Spurgeon said. So that's what we're going to do, is we're not going to go about how bad the world is and how much we've screwed up as a human race. We've got plenty of time for that. Today, we're going to look at the before picture. We're going to look at what God's brilliant design was for human beings. We're not going to hunt down all the wrong views of humanity and gender and marriage and all that stuff. Plenty of time for that. Today, we're going to look at the before picture. And it'll become pretty clear as we go through that um, the before picture is better than the after picture. And we'll explain kind of how that goes as we go along. So the bottom line is, is that we want to talk about how brilliant God, um, God is in how he designed humanity to function relationally, how he put things together. And then the realities of sin and brokenness will come into greater clarity. So this section of scripture, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, is really a double click on chapter 127. So if you go back to 127, we have this day six account of God creating humanity, his image bearers, and he describes it this way. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. With this really tight summary of the creation of humanity, human beings on day six, and then it continues on, kind of talking about their commission, and then day seven, and then in chapter two, we have this zooming in. Genesis 1 is the Google Earth view, seeing just this big picture. And then what Genesis 2 is, is street level view. We're just going to look at human beings and what God did. So, one, so this section of scripture is a double click on 127 to just see how it is that God arranged this male, female, human image bearing creature, how he designed them. And I'm going to argue that it's a brilliant human design. It's a brilliant intention that God has put in his image bearers. And I want to look at three things. I want to look at identity. I want to look at marriage. And I want to look at family. That God has a brilliant design for those three things. Human identity, who are human beings in their essence. Marriage and family. We're going to see those things that God brilliantly designed those things. This is the before picture. Before sin entered the world, these three things. And I want to look at three sub points on each one of those. What unifies the unity of, that, of, of those? What unifies each of those three categories? What's different? The differences that we see in each one of those. And then the sequence. All right, so hopefully I didn't totally lose you there. Three main categories, identity, marriage, and family. And then within those, unity, difference, and sequence. And what they have to tell us about God's brilliant design. Okay? All right, I think it'll make sense as we go along. Let's look at identity. God's beautifully designed human identity. God's brilliantly designed human identity. And what I want you to see first and foremost is that when God created man and woman, I want you to notice just the emphasis on how the same they are, how like each other they are. Um, we'll get to the differences, but there is a tremendous emphasis in chapter 1 and 2 of just how same male and female are. Notice the emphasis on sameness. Genesis 1.27, going back a chapter, so God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is seen as a singular with two parts. So they are the same. They're the same humanity in the same image of God. In chapter 2, verse 18, just look at the text right in front of you there. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then in chapter 2, or uh, verse 20, it God gives man the assignment to just kind of drive into Adam's head. It's like Adam doesn't even know he's alone yet. So he gives us this, him, him this assignment to name the animals, and he sees them go by two by two, like everyone has a pair. And it says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and of every beast, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. There was no second of his kind. He is the only thing in creation that has no companion, has no one like him, no one to share his identity with even God himself is a triune God even God lives in relationship so he's one God but he's three persons and that God himself is not alone Adam is literally the only creature that is has no one like him no one who is the same as him and God says that's not good he needs someone who is like him someone not exactly like him but of his same substance of his same essence of his same identity and so we see the sameness of these two. In Genesis 21, uh, 2, 21 through 22, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
So it's fascinating. He doesn't make the woman from something else. He doesn't make her from dust, a different dust. He doesn't make her from pine needles or whatever. He makes her from his, the own substance of man. He takes something from the man and makes the woman to show how much the same they are. They're made from the same substance. She is not made of a superior substance from him, and she's not made of an inferior substance from him, but the same exact substance, the same exact, his own body actually reformed, a portion of his own body reformed to show how unified, how much unity the male and the female have together, Adam and Eve have together. Verse 23, notice what Adam says when she comes up. God is kind of like the, the cosmic father of the bride, brings the woman to the solution to creation's problem. He brings her forward, and the very first words recorded in human history are his response to this woman. And he breaks into beautiful Hebrew poetry. I don't know if your first words as a human being were brilliant Hebrew poetry, but this seems to be the case here. And he sees her, and notice what he says about her. He doesn't highlight the differences. He highlights how much like himself he is, how much the same she is. Look at this. Then the man said, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And we have beautiful human poetry here, or Hebrew poetry, parallelism and chiastic structure and repetition. Just, you know, the most compact, beautiful little piece of poetry to show that now Adam has a companion. He has someone like him. And this is familial language. You'll see this throughout the rest of the New Testament. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, referred to family. Referring to biological family. My son is my bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. My daughter, my sister. This is family language that he highlights. His first impression of her is not how different she is, but how like him he, she is. That's super significant, how much the same and like each other they are. Adam rejoices in her sameness. He's got another self. Not exactly like himself in terms of a clone, but a family member, a sister a companion. And her name shows the sameness as well as because in the Hebrew here it says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. So he assigns this kind of human is going to have this title, Isha, for she was taken out of man, Ish. Ish, Isha, even within her own name, she will be the same yet different. And we have that in our language, don't we? We have male and we have female. So even the female has the word male in it to show we're talking about w the same species, the same likeness. Man and woman, right? To show the unity of these two kinds of human beings. And then we see in Genesis 4, 24 through 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This body comes back together in mysterious ways. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. One flesh, same, shared body, both naked and not ashamed, same status. It's not like one has to be covered up and the other doesn't. They're in the same status. They have the same image within them. They're on the same level, same experience, same standing before God. And we'll talk about the complementarity in a moment. In fact, that's going to be our next point here in a minute is to show how different they are. But let's not forget the overwhelming emphasis of how similar and same and like each other the Bible is emphasizing in Genesis 1 and 2. These two are, in, are one creature. They are one. Um, they are the same. And what they share in common is more profound than what's different, although the differences are profound as well. So just notice the emphasis on how same and companion and like each other the male and the female kind of human beings, of image bearers are, and how much they share in it together. But also notice the emphasis on complementarity. They're not exactly the same. They're not a clone. He's not a clone of Adam, but he's a complement, or she's a complement to Adam. The emphasis on complementarity. If you go back to Genesis 1.27, kind of the main category, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them male and female, he created them, which fits with the binary creation order that God did, right? He had sun and moon. We had forming days and filling days. And everything kind of had a, a binary pair with it. And the human beings also have that same binary pair 
assigned by God. This complementary assigned by God, if you could, you go back to my February 21st message on the God who is imaged, I unpack that a little bit in that message. But notice that there, there's differences. They're not totally, inter, they're not interchangeable. Male and female are different in how they image God together. Genesis 2.18, we see that God tells, God sees that it's not good for man to be alone. And then he resolves of his own will, not at Adam's request. This is something he sees that Adam himself doesn't even realize yet. God has intentions and cares for Adam that Adam just doesn't even have a category for, which should give us a lot of comfort as human beings. That's true about you as well, is that God cares about things that you haven't even noticed yet. And he is acting in ways for your good that you may not even notice yet. And that's what's happening with Adam, and God's still like that. He sees things that are going on and is working in ways that we have no idea for our good. And he's doing that here with Adam, and he makes, God resolves with himself. He, spot, he talks to himself here. And he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And then in verse 20, but for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So Adam needs another self, but he doesn't need an exact self. He needs a different kind of human being to match, to complement, to help fulfill what is lacking in himself, what he's not able to do on his own. And so God is going to custom make another human being that matches up so brilliantly with what Adam brings to the table. Adam brings some wonderful things to the table, but there's a lot of things missing that God says is not good. I'm going to bring someone who matches and fills that thing out, who makes that thing work together. I'm going to make something fit for him. And in Hebrew, this is really fascinating. This fit for him uh, literally is according to his opposite. According to his opposite. So like him and yet his opposite. And another way to, to, to put it is in front of his face. So, to, so the man and the woman stand face to face, eye to eye, nose to nose, and they fit together in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically. God made them to be able to stand face to face with that kind of intimacy. At this point, man has only been that kind of intimate with God as God breathed life into him. Now there's going to be someone that has a special intimacy with man, his equal, eye to eye, and yet totally different. Totally different in all the right ways in that before his face, he will have a helper fit for him, before him, to stand face to face with him and to complement according to his opposite. And the word helper there is the word azer which is used 19 times in the Old Testament. It's used two times about woman here to speak about how she's going to relate to this man. There's two times where it's used about other human beings and it's talking about a stronger helping a weaker. If I need some soldier to come be my helper in battle, I need someone stronger than me to come. So, and then the other 15 times refer to God being an azer. So any reading about this that makes women somehow subservient or weaker than men is simply not what this word is getting at. It's always about a, a stronger helping a weaker in some sense. So we can't take this view of the f feminine creature as if she's somehow lesser than the man. The fact that she is a helper means that she completes and can do what man cannot do by himself. Does that make sense? This is a highly dignified term that God himself uses as a helper. God himself refers to himself as an azer. So let's not in any way think that the, the woman creature is in any way subservient in some sort of lesser way because God himself uses this term azer. So this is a dignified, glorious, coming to the rescue kind of creation for the man. And, and chapter 2, verse 24, he will hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. So their bodies even will fit together in a way that shows their unity and yet their complementarity. They're different in all the right and needed ways. So you see the complementarity of that and that it's a dignified, glorious, wonderful thing that God has created here. So just see the brilliance of the human design here. That God is a genius in how he's putting these human beings on the earth. And then I want you to notice the sequence. Look at the sequence when it comes to their identity because the order in which God does things has significance. The, old, the New Testament picks up on this. We'll look at it in a second. That God is creating humanity in a certain order with a certain sequence. This is not just God's just making it up as he goes. He is teaching us something about ourselves in the sequence and order with which he is creating. 
particularly with the human creatures. So notice that Adam is created first and then Eve from Adam. That's significant. That Adam is created first. He is to take the lead, to take initiative. And Eve is the responder to his initiative. And Eve comes from Adam. And so they, they are of the same substance. Adam is given the moral responsibility and direction of the creation. Notice that God gives the command to Adam before Eve is even on the planet yet. Well, unless you count her in rib form. But it's just Adam. Adam is given the command and the, the mantle of moral responsibility for the universe is laid entirely on Adam's shoulders. The command to not eat from the trees is given before Eve gets there because Adam, if something goes wrong, I'm putting the responsibility on you. You bear the responsibility for what happens under your care. And then later he's going to bring a woman under his care, which is part of what makes Genesis 3 such a terrible, destructive thing is that whole design of God begins to be upended and we've been dealing with the fallout ever since. So man is given the moral responsibility and accountability before God that is somewhat unique and is given the power, so to speak, to direct the moral direction of the universe. Adam is given the moral authority to use his words. He's asked to name the animals. So he is supposed to lead with how he speaks. He is to assign. He names the woman. There's a certain naming authority that he is supposed to use his words and his influence for good. The man is to be a speaking, leading, taking responsibility kind of creature within the human project. And the woman is to be responsive to that, to beautify that. Therefore, men take the lead in moral responsibility in the home and the church. This is what 1 Corinthians gets to in 1 Corinthians 11, 3. 1 Corinthians 11 is massively confusing. Let's just kind of stick to what we can know, okay? So... Just notice a little bit of the argument that he's making here and we can kind of leave some of the head coverings for another day. The application of it. But the truth here is pretty significant. In the New Testament, looking back at this created order, this is what Paul says to a church. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So he's saying that in this created order, the order in which God created things was to give us an indication that God wants the male kind in the relationship, in the home and the church, to take the initiative to bear the responsibility and to use their words to be a speaker of grace and truth in the home. This is not to say that women can't do those things as well, but God has a special responsibility for the man to step into that particular role as a demonstration of his created responsibility. There's other reasons as well that we'll get to. Later on in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this in verse 7, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God, but woman is in the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So he, he, just the point being here is that the order matters, is what Paul is saying. The order tells us something about how we function together. The sequence of creation is significant, theologically, relationally, morally. And he's drawing that out here. He says, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I don't know what that means. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man from woman. For as woman was made from man, so man now is born of woman, and all things are from God. So then he kind of squares it up there, as just to make sure there's no misunderstanding. We're mutually dependent on each other. So yeah, woman came from man once, and ever since, man's been coming from woman. So don't get prideful. Don't get arrogant. Don't get dominant. Just realize that we're both kind of need each other in this thing. And all of it's from God and it's good. And the sequence of how God created things has significance for how the relationship works, particularly in the church and the home. I want a man to step up and to use his words to lead. And I want to, and he's going to be held accountable. So we could go to other passages. In fact, one more. One more. 1 Timothy 2, talking about the church. It says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Use your words and your strength to lead the people in the church. Men, step up and be prayers. Use your words to shape and lead because you have this responsibility. And then it goes on. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should remain quiet, which that can be misunderstood a lot of ways. For, verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Does that make sense? The point being is that the sequence has significance 
for how men and women relate to each other in the home and in the church, okay? We'll have other sermons to deal with that. I just want to show you that the sequence matters and that human beings, while the same, male and female the same, they are different and different in terms of how God would want them to image him, particularly in the home and the church. Got it? Men are designed to call and expected by God to take initiative, responsibility, and leadership of the things given to his care. His wife and his family... And qualified men are to take authoritative teaching and leadership roles in God's church. That's what 1 Timothy says. Women are designed and called and expected by God to be responsible, to be responsive to godly male leadership and to use their gifts and abilities to enhance and encourage and help the godly leaders expand and improve their good influence. That's way oversimplified, but that's the main point, right? Is that the woman takes the feeble, poor offerings of the man and makes, the, makes it work, right? That's how it works in the home. That's how it works in the church is that God works in this way. Now, lest we fall into the trap of thinking that this is somehow a putting down of women in any way, I want you to just think about this very carefully. So ladies, listen. Well, guys, you should listen to. Listen to this. Look at God's perspective on women in this chapter. Just think about the glory of this. The creation of woman is indeed the featured capstone of the created universe the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, the perfection of God's created work. He makes a man, puts him in the universe, and goes, ah, not good. Not because making the man was bad, but just going, this is missing a female. It is not very good, it's not good, until a woman is placed there. She answers the question. She's the solution to the problem. She solves the equation. She unlocks the riddle. She completes the universe. This is massive. Girls, ladies, look at the heart of God for you. According to God, the world without a woman is not good. Not just womankind, but the actual woman Eve. Like one woman completed the thing so this is not just we need women for their functions it's no this woman which could have just as easily been you god put eve there as eve there and he put eve there but it could have just as been as easily you could have any one of you women god could have created you and put you there with your personality apart from sin with there a woman completes the universe God doesn't create Adam a harem of women. That would have been more efficient to fill the world with image bearers. That was not his intention. One woman completes the whole cosmos. Women, girls, take this to heart. The reality of the God of the Bible. It's not just the Eve kind of human that is needed, but Eve herself is the completion. You see this? God's delight in Eve in particular. And daughters of Eve, I think, have God's same eye, same affection, same heart. So I think in churches like ours where we have, we we try to emphasize strong male leadership, it can feel like women are somehow second class in some sort of way. Not the case. And may that never be. Look at this. Women are awesome. It happened to be Eve. It could have easily been you. Very good apart from sin. God would have said these very good words about you if you were in that spot. Eve's kind of human is still roaming the earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again to restore all that Eve had and lost to you. You can have that back. God's vision for you. There's redeeming grace for Eve's kind. There are many, I think, out there that would like to put women back in their place. And I agree. And I think it's this place. Not as, like, press them down as some would want to, but, oh, look at the glory of what God thinks of the womankind. Just meditate on that. Think about that. About the heart of God in this text about women. And may it never be that this book is somehow seen as some sort of misogynistic, hard on women. Not true. Genesis 3 is where we'll see all of this kind of unravel and we've gotten it wrong in a million ways. But this is the heart of God. This is what he designed from the beginning and it's brilliantly designed. 
All right, so let's move now to brilliantly designed marriage. Just notice a couple things here. I guess we're going to go through the same pattern again. Notice the emphasis on monogamy. One man, one woman, glued together for life. Notice the emphasis on heterosexuality, that it's a male and female that go together. God does not make multiple wives for Adam, but one, monogamy. Not one woman for a while and then another one and then another one, but one woman glued together for life. Look at chapter 2, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, his wife, not someone else's, his singular wife, and the two, not three or five, the two, male and female, the, the two, the man and the wife, the ish and the isha, shall become one flesh. That's permission. <laughs> That's permission. It's also command. Be one flesh. Trust me, you'll, you'll like it. It'll be great. One flesh. You have my permission and my command to be one flesh together, male and female kind together. A man, singular. His wife, singular. The two become one singular flesh. Matthew 19, Jesus talks about this. Jesus has asked a question about divorce. And watch how Jesus does this. Jesus goes back to creation. He goes back to this very text. Matthew 19, 3 through 6 says, The Pharisees came to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? So is this monogamous heterosexual relationship, can you, can you break that apart? Like what are, how does God let, let that thing come apart? How can you get out of this thing? And here's what Jesus says. Have you not read, which is an indictment on them, Genesis 2 should shape everything you think about this. This is your model. This is the, this is the standard. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? See that? He made them that way and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother Hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6. This is Jesus here. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So you have the idea of marriage being a man and a woman, monogamous for life, because it's an agreement before God. And since God is the one who has made this agreement, only God possesses really the authority to break it. And then he gives the conditions of how that might happen. But that's beyond kind of the scope of what we're doing here. The point being is that Jesus goes to this text, our text today, to give us the entire definition on what the human marriage situation is supposed to look like. He's saying he's giving us not just the specifics, but the general principles of going, you want to know how this works and what the standards are and what God was going for. Go to Genesis 2 and just test whatever you're thinking about to that. If it squares with that, then that's what God was intending there. And then I want you to notice the implications of the order. The man leaves his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and then the two become one flesh. So we have the leaving of father and mother, the cleaving or the gluing together, holds fast, literally glues together, and then they become one flesh. So you see the order with which this new marriage is to be created. So this would mean that we are not fans, and God is not a fan of child marriage. Right? You should leave your father and mother, which presumes, I think, adulthood. Hold fast to your wife, and then becomes a new marriage unit. It is on the man. I think it's not by accident that it says that the man leaves father and mother, not the woman. And this is not a strict rule, but I think there's a general principle here. It's on the man to pay the price, take the initiative, the responsibility, the leadership to leave, pursue, glue, and make a new allegiance to this woman. He leaves the allegiance of his father and mother and now has a new allegiance to this one woman for the rest of his life. Adam paid the price. He lost the rib in order to gain the woman. The man should pay a price, I think, to get the woman, which is why I'm a, I am a big fan of guys asking a girl's dad if they can marry them. There should be a little bit of a cost here. There should be a little bit of a protectiveness here. It's like are you leaving father and mother to come, and if you want this precious daughter of mine, I'd like to see you doing this, right? Before the one fleshness. The woman receives the man's initiative and perfects and beautifies and multiplies it and even takes his own, his own name 
so that they become united together. So the order, I think, is even wise. I think there's wisdom even in the order with which this new marriage is created. So take that to heart, young men, young women, parents. I think that this is wise of God to order it this way. And there is grace for when we don't get it right. But that doesn't leave us from the fact that this is, I think, a beautifully designed process, sequence, order. And then lastly, look at a beautifully designed family. Notice the emphasis on union. I don't know if you've noticed this in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. That's kind of like meant to be one unit. So this idea of father-mother is, is a thing. He leaves father and mother, which means he's living with his father and mother. So, so God's original design, and I know because of sin, marriages break, single parents, mixed families, all that stuff. I, I totally understand all that. God designed it from the outset for a father and mother to be the unit with which that raises children together, okay? And there's grace for when that doesn't happen. I don't mean to single out anyone, but notice the beautiful design prior to sin here that a man leaves father and mother, a family, and holds fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. And then the implication being is that those two people in their one fleshness have children and then they together raise those same children and then they go and they leave and we have that Genesis 2 4 Toledot happening. The canvas on which God is going to write his story, which is the generations of human beings, the offspring, happens 10 times in the book of Genesis that God is going to write his story on the procreation of man, on these families producing a lineage of healthy human beings filling the earth. This Toledot is going to come by means of individuals who come together in beautifully designed marriage making beautifully designed families, and then Toledot, the generations continue, and God writes his story on human history. And it happens in the context of family. So notice, notice the union that the father and mother are seen as one unit that the person then leaves to go start a new family union through marriage and children. Notice the roles. The ish, man, male, becomes father. See the title that the man takes once a child is born? He now takes on this identity of father, which God himself takes on. So the man steps in somewhat of a godlike provisional role. When God says that he is a father to us, he gives us little micro versions of that in human beings. And so men, we have, when we become fathers, take up the mantle of like, we have to represent God in how we care for things, how we care for our wife and our children. Because, and you may have noticed this, kids get their framework for how they see God from their fathers in many cases. God takes that term upon himself. God calls himself Father. And the, you know, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Men, may we be. May that not be a hard thing for our kids to pray. That when they say our Father about God, it's not a hard line to draw from how, they've react, re, how you have led them to now how God leads them. The ish, the man, the male, steps into father, takes on the glorious title that God himself takes of father. And the woman steps into this wonderful title of mother. In fact, Eve's name is mother of all the living. What a dignified, glorious thing. The woman herself, like in her body, gets to be the fingertips of God. God hand makes, we talked about last time, God hand makes every human body with his own hands. It says that in Psalm 139, that he knit us together in his mother's womb. And so a woman actually within herself is the very fingertips of God, weaving new eternal image bearers. What an amazing thing to be a mother. And when God himself wants to enter into the world, he enters by means of a woman. And he kind of leaves the man out of this thing. There's all kinds of theological things to think about there. But what a dignified, glorious reality to be a mother. Both are indispensable to the healthy formation of humanity, okay? I know that there are broken families even represented in this church. And I just hope that the ache of what was designed, you feel the ache, but you run to Christ because there's grace. And a church is meant to be a place where what has been broken and missing can be put together because you're part of a family. Does that make sense? That's the aim here. That's God's fix. Is Christ and his church is the fix for this thing. And then notice the order, covenant marriage before God, then one flesh activity, then babies, then raising healthy adulthood, and then sending them off to start a new family. Do you see, even see the sequence of families in this text? 
raise them up to go be good husbands and fathers or single people for the sake of the kingdom, whatever. Whatever God's assignment is for them, do you see the order and sequence with which this goes about and how brilliantly and beautifully this is designed? So beautifully designed identity, beautifully designed marriage, beautifully designed family. We see unity in each of those. We see diversity in each of those. And we see that the sequence with which God creates, it tells it a little bit of how the thing works. Okay? And lastly, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, all of this is meant to point to and be a reality of a great salvation, a beautifully designed salvation. We just read this, Sarah read this, when it talks about husbands and wives in the church, Paul can't help but go to the gospel. Ephesians 5, 22 and through 33, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord because there's a bigger reality you're a part of. You're a miniature version of something big that God is doing. So this is not just so your home will work well, but this is telling the world something about God and what he thinks about humanity and what he's wanting to do with humanity. 4, verse 23, the husband is the wife, uh, is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So men who step into the husband role are supposed to model themselves after Christ. This is a miniature version. Every marriage is meant to be a miniature micro version of the gospel. And what Jesus thinks about his church should be very evident in how husbands treat their wives. And that's Paul's angle here. So lead your wives as Christ leads the church. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to in everything to their husbands. So wives are playing a role. They're putting something on display in how they respond to their husbands. So there's a lot going on more than just whether or not you're getting along and your marriage works out and you're happy. Those are all important things that God cares about. But there is something much bigger for the Christian in marriage. There's a bigger reality at play that kind of trumps everything else, which is does this display Christ in his church? Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. And here's the standard. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How should I love this woman? Like to the to crucifixion kind of love. Like have the skin ripped off of you by whips. Like suffocate on a bloody cross naked. That's how you love her. Oh, okay. This is a big deal, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church that he might sanctify, having cleansed her by the washing of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That kind of goes to the Adam thing, right? Adam's own body was formed into Eve and so he cares for her because she came from his own body. Yeah, husbands, do that. Do, do the Adam stuff bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, delights in her. For no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does for the church. Because it says we're the body of Christ too, right? All of this imagery is, is interwoven because we are members of his body. Verse 31. Therefore, look what he quotes. Genesis 2. Talking about marriage, how this is supposed to work, and that you're part of something much bigger than just your own happiness and success in marriage. You're, you're saying something about reality about eternity and he quotes genesis 2 he says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh now listen to this this is a game changer verse 32 this mystery is profound and i am saying that it refers to christ and the church so you reading your genesis 2 account there of god creating the world before sin and this beautiful human design is embedded with all of the nuggets all of the all of the helpful categories for how Christ is going to redeem the world from sin how God's going to save the thing God is so in control of history that he goes ahead and puts the miniature in on display there and it won't totally make sense for thousands of years but right there we already have the categories we need to understand the gospel and God's reconciliation of humanity to himself so all of these things, identity, marriage, family, all point in their own way to a greater reality. 
the sameness, the complementarity, the order, the monogamy, the heterosexuality, the union, the roles, they all reveal and display the perfections and salvation of God. That's what the Bible is holding out to us. That God isn't doing this to try to restrict people. He's got a plan, and we get to be part of the plan. And that's why it's beautiful. If you're not a Christian, these, this seems really restrictive. I would just, just ask you to just consider what the document's laying out and at least consider, is this a beautiful design? And then from there, one, we can then talk from there. The brilliant design, design, Christians are convinced that God is a genius. And they got it exactly right. And things are going to work a whole lot better in the world when we understand that he's a genius. And he made it beautiful and perfect. And we have at the beginning of our Bibles, we have the culmination, the before picture, is this beautiful marriage between a man and a woman. And we've got the sin, the after picture. But the ultimate after picture is in Revelation 21 when it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of he- out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the very first chapters, this beautiful design, the very last two chapters of the Bible, how we're going to get back there, and it's going to be even better than it was before because it's not just going to be one man and one woman enjoying God's presence. It's going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation now married to Christ himself. From wedding to wedding. There's only been two perfect weddings. You all know this if you have put on a wedding, how stressful they are. They never go off quite right. There's two perfect ones. One in the first two chapters, one in the last two chapters. And the first one kind of slipped through our fingers. But Christ came, came for his bride, paid the price on the cross, rose again, and now promises, asks his bride, those who would trust in him now get to be part of his bride and we get to be part of a second, greater, glorious wedding if we will put our trust in Jesus Christ. Obey his command, obey, uh, uh, respond to his invitation to come to him in faith, to follow him on his terms, and he will begin to put all of this together individually, but ultimately he's going to put it all together cosmically at this big revelation, at this big ending, culmination at the end of time. Bottom line, God is a loving, thoughtful genius. He knows exactly what he's doing. He did everything intentionally. And God's design for human ma- humanity makes perfect sense. I think if you just kind of look at it on its own terms on what the document is holding out about God and about what he intended, it makes a lot of sense what he did. It makes perfect sense. God cares about and addresses the human problem of loneliness. This isn't just about marriage and family. It's also about companionship. Friendship, community, partnership, intimacy, family are all essential to physical and spiritual flourishing. So maybe you're not married here today. This passage is still for you. Friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood, intimacy, family, those are all a part of what God is addressing when he brings the woman to Adam. There's so much more than just marriage and family, but that's certainly there. God created the woman as both same and different from the man. Therefore, the order, design, and assign, assignment inform men and women how to specifically image God, particularly in the home and the church, in specific ways that we saw already. We've gotten this wrong in every single way, and we're going to look at why that happened next week. But that's not on God. That's not on God. That's on us. This was God's original design. This was the before picture. And we'll see what we've done to things in the after picture. It's going to make a lot of sense how we got where we are. To go against God's design is, some, is both treasonous and it's suicide. I mean, we, broke this, we break this thing. Sin broke this thing. And so we want to get and protect and promote. And Christians, here would be my final charge to you. God intends all of this to be a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's something more at stake than just our own needs and feelings. We are called to live in the fullest expression of our maleness and femaleness for the sake of God's glory. We need to work hard to present and display the kind of biblical marriages that are undeniably good 
and beautiful. Let's work hard as husbands and wives to make sure that people see the goodness of God's design and how glorious that is. Nurture the nuclear family in such a way that healthy and godly men and women are launched out into the world, whether they're single or married, with a singular passion for the glory and goodness of God. And above all, this would be the, the above all, above all, is make Christ and his church the center of your life. These two will make it onto eternity. Marriage is not, according to Jesus. It's going to be a temporary shadow that's eventually going to go away into the greater reality of God, but Christ and his church will be there. That marriage is going to be there. Family will be different. Enjoy those things now. Leverage them for kingdom purposes. But ultimately, invest yourself in the eternal realities of Christ and his church. Come to faith in him. Trust in him. And become a part of this church thing that he's doing. This kingdom thing that he's a part of. Let's invest ourselves in the eternal realities while also getting the benefit of all that he intends in the temporary realities. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. God, there's so much here in your word, and we've only scratched the surface. God, I pray that there was something of you in these words, and I pray that my friends here um, were helped. God, we pray that your voice spoke to their hearts, and we pray that ultimately, in all of that we have seen in Genesis chapter 2, we'd ultimately see the glory and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that though we are broken in so many ways and we have fallen so short of this ideal, God, that there is grace for us and that we can just come to you and you forgive us of our sins, you cleanse us, and you begin the restoration work of putting all of this back together. And we thank you that you've not given up on this design, that you have not forsaken the world, but you are on a rescue plan to put all of the pieces back together. And so, God, we just, we ache for what has been lost. And because of Christ, we hope for what's ahead. We thank you for this good news in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.